Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Dulcimer Geek Podcast. The date is February the 17th, 2017. I'm Stephen Seifert. I'm here with Dan Landrum and Aaron O'Rourke. Good morning, Hello, everybody. Hello, friends. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, Aaron. What are we doing, nice. Dan? Well, it's nice to have everybody back in town. Yeah. And what we're doing is a uh, directed show. Did you guys see the Facebook post that I put up about the way we usually start this show? No, I didn't. Yeah, it's kind of like we're so. <clears throat> it's kind of like we're dogs in the back of a pickup truck, <laughs> and we're in the cages, and we know somebody's going to take us hunting. Wow! <laughs> and we get there normally, and they drop the tailgate down and just open the cages, and we just jump on the ground, and whatever we smell, we just start barking and chasing. That's us. Yeah, that's a pretty solid metaphor. We yes. want to interact with people today. This time we want to do it differently. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is more like a dog show. Hey, if you're on <laughs> Facebook right now. Yes. We want to interact with you. So I'm holding uh, holding this laptop. I just bumped the microphone. That's I all apologize. Right. Uh, we want to answer questions today. Uh, not legal questions. We would take love advice if people need that. Yeah. Yeah. We've all been in love. Totally. Yeah. But that's what we're doing. So let's just jump right in. Because I asked the question this morning and a few people answered. Uh, I'm going to start at the bottom of the list. Amy Cox says, finding the time to devote to uninterrupted practice is always difficult at my house. Consequently, I feel like I'm stuck at a plateau. Any suggestions for working through places like that to start growing again as a player? Hmm. Hmm. Aaron hasn't plateaued yet, so I don't think he should answer this. I'm kidding. No, I was thinking exactly that. <laughs> Did you have plateaued? Oh, no, I was actually thinking um, I should. I don't think I'm qualified to answer this because I don't have any kids. We're a crazy house. Well, I'll tell you, I have a memory. <laughs> I have a memory early on in high school um, when I was doing piano and dulcimer and then into college. I would have these great periods of activity i'd get interested in something i'd research talk to people i just felt this great fire and then sometimes that would die down and i and also there was another oscillation it was me feeling like my strum was terrible and i couldn't go anywhere with it like i just knew something needed to happen with my strum but i didn't know what so i had my interest peaking and waning and and I had a feeling sometimes like I know I need to grow I don't know what to do though and I just want to tell you what I did I would expose myself to great art not always music uh, but very often it was all about focusing on a musician and saying what do I like about what they're doing one thing and just focusing on that one thing. And for instance, I remember getting fascinated with rhythm. And um, I was listening to Sam Bush on a, on a mandolin and how he made it into a, like a rhythm instrument. And just hyper-focusing on that for a little bit would feed my practice time and the, the types of exercises I was coming up with. It, it created a little goal for me, you know. And and I want to say that all these little plateau periods have all been building upward, and I no longer fear them. To me, it's just a sign that hey, I need to I need to focus on something. I need to look for something new, and I I don't fear it anymore. All right, I don't want to derail this apparently high time that you're having right now. <laughs> <laughs> but I think those plateaus, we're still on the train. You'll have low ones and you'll have high ones. And yeah. I'm glad you're on a high one right now. No, that's what I was saying. It's constantly yeah. up and down, but it's always yeah, it an is. upward trend. At least it I mean. is for me. I don't think I can speak for everyone. Uh, I have learned from being around people like you guys to stay excited and I think so that's sort of what you're saying, but I'm just saying on a more personal basis, uh, if you're sort of getting burned out on it, if you talk to someone that just fires you up that, you know, or you see somebody doing something, you think, man, I see they're achieving something because they've been working at it, then that can help you to 
to maybe feel some of that that same That's fire, true. that same excitement. There's really not a lot you can do, Amy. To I mean, you know all the organizational things. I know Amy; she's a real smart person. She yeah. does that. She's got mm-hmm. it together, so she's doing all that to begin with. So sometimes you just have to go. I'm not going to pretend like I'm going to practice today or even tomorrow because I got something else going on. But I think if you can really, when you do get the time to do that one thing, make sure it is a time that you can do that one thing and just do that and don't try to fix everything in that one time that you get to do that one thing. Pick out one deal and hyper-focus on that. I think it's also important to remember one other thing and that sometimes... um some of the most important practice happens when you're away from the instrument. Um, one of my favorite musicians, uh, supposedly, I don't know whether this is true or not, but would, when, you know, having that, uh, well, whenever he would use the bathroom, he would practice Vivaldi <laughs> on mandolin. <laughs> and, um, Without an instrument? Supposedly. No, with an instrument. <laughs> but I think that it's probably a little bit more difficult to drag the hammer dulcimer into the bathroom and yeah. practice anything. But there's still these little moments, whether it's while you're doing the dishes, whether you're cooking, you're sitting at a traffic light. There's these short little opportunities that I try and seize when I can, especially... Um, in the middle of like a, a festival or something where even though I'm sitting with the instrument a lot and I'm doing a lot of teaching, I'm not necessarily pra- practicing the things that are going to push me you know, up to the next plateau necessarily. Those are the little opportunities that I try and grab where I can just practice in my head more or less. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, okay. and we'll have to, we've done multiple shows talking On about this practice. Subject. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, I think all that stuff, there are no magic bullets. I think all the, every time we discuss it, it comes kind of back to the same basic things. Just recently we talked about, and I agree with this completely, not practicing the things that are easy, practicing the things you're not good at. Mm-hmm. And learning to do that because you recognize the value in it. Don't pretend to do like it. Don't Don't pretend that you're doing it because you love doing this stuff you're not any good at. You you know what Tom Waits says about magic bullets? No. The more magic bullets you use, the more bad days you're going to have without them. <laughs> <laughs> That's because good. some people, like James Taylor talks about using heroin and how for a time it made him more creative and then it got ugly and there was a serious plateau, so... Uh, really? All right. Just, Somebody fire up with another what's question. What's another? I've never one? heard that. Let's move on. Let's hit them faster too, because we don't really have all that. Yeah, much we to don't say. need to all three respond either necessarily. <laughs> okay, actually, here's here's one from Dulcimer School, uh, but it requires a little bit of a setup. Mm-hmm. Um, a little while ago, I did some videos on paw hammer and claw hammer for the banjammer, and one person noticed Steve that on my banjammer my fretboard runs the entire length and on yours there's this scoop this hollow oh, yeah. uh, the the frailing scoop and they were asking um what's the difference is it just model and then is this just personal preference whether you would have it or not my answer to that was um i'm playing on a short scale and i would make heavy use out of those high frets on the banjammer when i first got it because i'm doing a lot of flat picking having said that there is this really sp- sweet thing that happens when you have that frailing scoop when you can frail you can play claw hammer up in front of the drum head you get this nice warm tone and i've just kind of come to the conclusion i've just come to the conclusion that i i I don't think uh one banjammer can just do it all so my next one is going to have that frailing scoop but i'm going to keep this one with the short scale and and i also do a lot of my flat picking 14 which is when I'm playing a band jammer, that's usually, but you're right. Yeah. And I will say that uh, I just recently scooped out a regular dulcimer, not for claw hammer, but I just wanted to be able to pick up there without picking the wood. So you anyway, scooped it out? Uh, well, I had the, the guy make it without frets past 14. Terry McCafferty, actually. Cool. All right. All right, Steve. 
Fire up with a question. Oh, well, people always ask me when to change their strings. <laughs> uh, make sure you're reading the Facebook feed, y'all. Um, I figured out when I change strings, it's usually before a really important gig. Because I don't want to chance a string breaking, you know. Um, other than that, I don't worry about it much, and I probably should. But I want to encourage people that... Uh, just change your strings every once in a while. <laughs> yeah. I want to answer this for Hammer Dulcimer when you're done. I mean, I could say 60 other things, but, oh, I'll say this. When you don't change your strings, you go out of tune up high when you fret up high. Um, so if you're playing up high a lot, you'll hear that flatness. You'll see it on the tuner. You'll know it's time to change your strings. If you don't play up past seven much, you won't really hear a big difference on a Mountain Dulcimer I hear a lot of people say, well, I'm having trouble getting in tune because uh, I, I must need to change my strings. And then usually the reason you're out of tune is you're just out of tune. Um, I don't think it, mm. new strings really are your problem. So or what about not. hammered? I think it's a very different answer for that. You have to think about a hammered dulcimer like a piano. And piano tuners don't change strings on pianos unless something has gone wrong. And that wrong is usually it's been exposed to a lot of moisture you know, or strings are breaking. And on a hammer dulcimer, that's partially true. In particular, your higher strings are, shouldn't be rusting. If they're rusting, the instrument's getting, you know, too much moist in it. If it's rusty, I'd change them. If, you're, if you touch the strings a lot like I do, you're going to tend to wear them out more. In particular, if you're bending and touching the strings, and you should be doing that, uh, the wound strings, you're getting skin and stuff in there and you'll notice that they start to get a little darker over time <clears throat> the wound strings will almost never break so i change those if they start to sound darker to me hmm. but don't make that decision after you've been practicing for any amount of time 30 45 minutes is too long because if you're in front of this thing that has a heart attack and a bright sound to begin with after 30 minutes 40 minutes of playing the thing you said hard attack I didn't mean that. Oh, no, no, no. I, I, I said heart attack. Oh, okay. Never mind. No, I didn't mean to say heart attack. Okay, great. It has a hard attack. Got there it. There you go. Yes. <laughs> Your ears get tired and you stop hearing the high frequencies. So the reason I'm saying all that is you, you may not be making the right decision after you've played it for a while and you're just not feeling good and you're, it just could be that your ears are tired or you're listening in a place where the air conditioner is running. There's all kinds of things. Think about it like a piano. You don't have to change them very often, usually because something has gone horribly wrong. Hmm. Like it's broken, or it's rusty, or it's gotten super dark. Uh, so that's for the wound strings. The third. So we talked about steel first, the wound one second. But then you've probably got some brass or, or phosphor bronze on there. I do change those. Because they do get darker sounding pretty quickly. And... I know that the phosphor bronze strings are going to tend to break when I'm playing. And I tend to play, I don't want to do this, but I tend to play a little bit more aggressively when I'm performing. Yep. And that's the time they're most likely to break. So that's it for Hammer Dulcimer, I guess. Hey, what's another question out there? Hey, if you're watching live on Facebook, I know that nine of you have the sound on and about 60 of you don't, according to the statistics. <laughs> so for you nine people who have the sound on on your video, just ask us anything. Ask us something. <laughs> what do you got there, Dan, man? Okay, oh. so I think this is a good one. Technical. And I ask on Facebook for people to just ask general questions, musician questions, too. So Michael Wood says, I'm interested in everyone's take on sharing videos through YouTube versus Facebook. As we are not a very concentrated community, we often rely on digital means to share fun stuff and advertise ourselves. In my limited experience, Facebook offers a lot of views and the ability to share beyond followers of a musician or band. But after a couple of days, a video die will die a quick death. YouTube offers longevity and searchability, but lacks the social engagement to reach many people. A lot of this has to do with how Facebook does not display YouTube videos nearly as well as their native stuff, which plays a large part. Which mm -hmm. could change. That's all. There's a whole yeah. lot of ifs there, y'all. And um, Facebook yeah, what's and YouTube now? can change what they're doing anytime. I think the short answer is 
I think it's definite. People talk about YouTube being the second most popular search engine. <laughs> I don't know yeah. if that's still true, YouTube. but it was. I don't know mm-hmm. if it's still true, but I know that if I'm going to search for like a, a, a camera stand, I'm likely to go to YouTube because I want to see a review or I just, you know, want to <laughs> see it in action. But I think that they're both good enough. I think you should be on both. And uh, there's that's ways the answer. To, what's that? Both. That's the answer. I think that is. And there's ways to yeah. be on both. And you can do it simultaneously or you can cater to, to each one. Well, but just do them. Do them both. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> Facebook has recently made it easier for you to do longer videos. Have you guys noticed that? No. No. Yeah. So I've been recording the uh, city council meetings and work sessions and had been putting them on YouTube this for the town I live in uh, because they're long. And I experimented the other day. I put a two over two hour movie on Facebook and it accepted it. I so think there's going to be a lot more longevity with YouTube, although I know I could be wrong. The thing I don't like about Facebook is if Dan says, oh, yeah, remember that video I did two years ago on Facebook? That's ah, horrible. You yeah. can't go find it. Hmm. And um, I, I anticipate Facebook changing radically over the next 10 years. YouTube, I don't know. It seems... I think they're getting better, though. Uh, an example, Aaron and I did a video with... Uh, I can see her face. Carrie Cooley sitting on the dock of the bay just one afternoon, figured it out, did it, recorded it, put it on Facebook. And that's the only place it exists. And we wanted to play it at a festival and we found it Mm -hmm. and learned it from looking at what we had done. So, I mean, you can find things on there. It took a little digging, though. I didn't just I couldn't just search for it. I had to go through into your profile because I remembered you had posted it. Then I went through your videos and then I found... Uh, yeah, that's lousy. It is. <laughs> yeah, okay. All right, so, but going back to the, the question, if I want social engagement, I'm not sure there's anyone who make who comments, well, this is overly mean, but YouTube, don't read the comments. <laughs> <laughs> I read the comments. Oh, my goodness. Uh. Not on yeah, your it's kind stuff. Of a wasteland as much, of awfulness. But I do read it. I'm more likely to read mine if somebody calls me a foul four letter name. You know, more well, that's yeah, and that's more likely to happen on YouTube than it is on Facebook. Yeah, that's all. And you, have you know, what who, if it's easier to troll there? Well, is it because if, of the anonymous nature yeah, of YouTube? Yeah. Okay. If Aaron was to do a really special video and release it on YouTube. There's a possibility not a lot of people are going to see that right away. So how, Aaron, can you get that into people's eyes? You know, I don't. I th- I think what I'm seeing more and more is Facebook being kind of the source for if something's going to go viral now, yeah. but they put it up on YouTube for the YouTube uh, viral for the sake of longevity. Less. Yeah. Well, what we yeah. haven't talked about with this, and we're staying on this maybe longer than we should, but if. None of us knows this for sure, but it sure seems like if you post it on YouTube and then you share the link on Facebook, fewer people see it on Facebook than if you upload it to Facebook. Well, that's our guess. Seems like that. Yeah, I wish we could empirically test that, but I don't know how we can do it. And I think it all goes back to this, guys. Make interesting stuff that you are interested in and and just put it out there that's the that's probably the the most important step i think don't try to get too clever about it because this stuff's (laughs) a big moving target and there's like i mean i can stream simultaneously to 10 different video services and you can get pretty complex i but our music you know let's make good music and all right moving on aaron next question that that was going to be my next question. I I I really enjoy uh, this comment. I like all the headgear. <laughs> <laughs> you guys look like pirates a little bit, hippie pirates. Hippie I'm like pirates. a Hawaiian Santa. <laughs> yeah, the way this worked out was Aaron got here earlier than I thought he was going to. <laughs> I still had on my sleeping shirt. <laughs> Ooh, I hate the sleeping shirt. That's scary. I, and I was going to go and 
change clothes, but instead I just got Aaron a tie-dye shirt. (laughs) (laughs) It's that lowest common denominator thing. That's right, and I hadn't had a chance to do my hair yet. (laughs) And so this is my first time wearing a bandana. I'm watching the stats on this show. It's really interesting. The average time people spend watching us right now is between 13 and 20 seconds. It's going back and forth. (laughs) Wow. That's more time than my wife pays attention to me during most days. Hey, we thank you for your 13 (laughs) seconds, everyone. All right. Your question, Steve, from a listener, watcher. Okay. uh, Dulcimer School student. We have a lot of Dulcimer School questions we had to hit on here. All right. What is it? Oh, I was, uh, let me go back to them. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh, you know what? <clears throat> yeah, let's just let's do some technical things. The number one question I'm asked on Facebook, excuse me, on Dulcimer School, dulcimerschool.com, is you make reference, I reference a book about rudiments. Hmm. And where is this book? I can't find it. I don't find because it. Because you reference this book a lot in those particular I, videos. In the first videos that I did, the plan was to do a book that went with those videos. And I was just going to sell these videos and then sell the book. <clears throat> in trying to put the book together, I found out that everything that needed to be taught needed to be taught visually. And that's where Dulcimer School came from to begin with. Oh, okay. That's, I mean, that was the launching pad for Dulcimer School was, okay, we got this really good video. Now I need to explain how you apply a four-stroke single to what you do every day on the Hammer Dulcimer because you don't believe that you really need to. And it was one of those things that if you just write about it, it's, it, I don't think it helps. You have to demonstrate it because you use it all the time in every song. And, and you use a double-stroke roll and you use loose hammer control and just all that stuff. So if you're watching Dulcimer School videos and I reference a book, you're looking at the book. It ended up being an electronic book with video. (laughs) (laughs) So there's the answer to that. Steve, you have a similar question that comes up a lot on Dulcimer School. Yeah, but I want to say one that comes up more than that. What? The Dulcimer School question I get all the time is they'll say, look, I know you got a ton of cool stuff on there. But I I need some direction. I, yeah. I, what order do I do things? And I I think the short answer is we're aware that people want to see a, a little bit of a path. And so we're, we're working on multiple paths that point you to relevant lessons. But Are we just <laughs> being not good by not having that path? I don't, I don't think, think so. You is and it I possible think like that, that it's... What's that? <laughs> Maybe we don't think like that, and, and we're going to have to respect some people like to see a. Path. No, I, I think we've just thrown so much up there, you know. Well, I mean, I tend to think along those lines. Yeah, I think I'm I'm very path oriented, but um, pathological, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, and I think you will. But uh, truth is, I mean, there's when it comes to mountain dulcimer we're at least and and hammer dulcimer as well there's a lot of different paths that you can go down i mean as if you look at any other uh instrument that's split out from genre you're unlikely to find the same instructor teaching you know a classical approach to mandolin as you are you know just straight up bluegrass with with exceptions to that rule i mean look at mike marshall for example um but you're I think it's pretty unlikely to sign up for a for a guitar course or a, or a banjo course where they're going to say, okay, at the beginning you're going to be playing claw hammer. Now at the advanced level you're going to be playing bluegrass because yeah. that's not true. There's there's beginner, intermediate, and advanced with within all of those. Does that make sense? And I feel like with um, with dulcimer school because it it has this pretty wide uh, spectrum of content that we can't say, okay, here's where you're going to start. This is the first video, and here's the last one. Yeah, that may be the weaknesses of of online training, actually. Mm -hmm. Because if you do get too path-oriented, somebody's going to want to veer off that path. Right. They should, actually, Mm -hmm. because they should at some point go, oh, I like this. Mm -hmm. And. There's just too much stuff on there right now, maybe, for a lot of people. So we're working on that. 
in a broader context, I mean, I think that's that's one of the struggles of just having a workshop that's that says mountain dulcimer, like happens occasionally at some you know just broad music festivals. You know, if you if you teach a a workshop, it'll just say dulcimer, or hammer dulcimer, or mountain right. dulcimer. Hey, cat, cat uh, is asking, and I think we could give a short answer to this, starting with Aaron, maybe. Um, how did each of you get introduced to the dulcimer world, the dulcimer world? Go, Aaron. Um, the dulcimer world. Um, well, I, I ran into a lady in Tallahassee named Linda Collins. I ran into um, her this week. Uh, yeah, Linda. she uh, she got me started with um with the basics of mountain dulcimer, and she was kind enough to say, "Hey, I'm actually going to this dulcimer event." Um, if you're interested in going, and that's where I met Don Petty, Maddie McNeil at the White Springs Dulcimer Retreat, and that was my first intro into, uh, I guess, the broader dulcimer community. So my first intro into the broader dulcimer community was a lady by the name of Gail Williams, and it was a mountain dulcimer, <clears throat> and my first dulcimer was mountain dulcimer that I got from her. Uh, she introduced me to the community by talking about how awesome it was to go to the to go to festivals but she was talking about like was cosby was that one of the big festivals one of the older ones yeah yeah one of the old ones the first one i don't remember right i never got to go mountain dulcimer i was i was playing and then i heard a hammer dulcimer and saw a picture of it and realized wait a second there are dulcimers that you can hit (laughs) that's funny and uh, we have the opposite story i was off and running at that point so that's the short story yeah so you heard a mountain first yes i on the Mannheim steamroller christmas album i heard a hammer dulcimer and i said i <laughs> i want to get one of those and my friend gave me a little one um at the library i found the dulcimer players news magazine and i also found some dulcimer books and when i looked in them and it looked like there was a community of people a dulcimer world and i thought who are these people? Where are they? And um, the first festival I went to, I believe, was Coshocton uh, up in Ohio, the Dulcimer Days, I think it's called. And uh, and the first club I went to was uh, Cincinnati Dulcimer Society, Marilyn Craft, Mike Cox, a bunch of great folks. So, so see, I, I'll this... tell you what I was drawn to mm-hmm. as much as the music. Okay was the, the, the world, the community. I thought it looked really cool. You know, we see so much social stuff now, but like 20 years ago, it was pretty exciting to think, there's a newsletter, there's a world. I can go to these festivals. I was yeah. drawn to that. So the the journeys that we talked about all took turns, you know, kind of mm-hmm. moved. And I think that's sort of the way Dulcimer School is, in a sense, that somebody comes hopefully and tries it out and likes one part or maybe doesn't like another part, doesn't want to do this, but wants to do that. And who knows, you may end up on a different instrument completely, Mm. but it's, uh, we have this opportunity now to have all this training available for more people. Uh, but we're also not saying ignore the social side of it. Yeah. You guys were both just at a, at a festival this weekend. Yeah. Yeah, hey, there's so. 13 of you watching. We'd love to get a question from you. Just give us some. <laughs> well, we got more questions. Hey, I want to go to one. <clears throat> All right. Put my, put my specs back on. So this is going to seem like it's ex- too extremely personal at first, but I'm going to do it anyway. Personal. All right. She says, how do you balance the demands of being an independent acoustic musician and being Barrett's grandpa? Mm. <laughs> So I think that's actually a really good question, though. I mean, it doesn't have to be specific about me. Don't, uh, while you should be social with this dulcimer stuff, this isn't life. This is just a thing you do in life. And I think you have to have all kinds of other experiences to, as a, if you want to be a creator, it's not a tech. I mean, there's a little technique involved in the process. Some of it's technical, but it's about experiencing life. And to me, I, I can't speak for anybody else, uh, but it's about doing things that you, other things that you love that make you happy and make you want to create ways of expressing 
the way you feel. Does that make sense? Is that too bloofy? <laughs> no, I don't think so. Yeah. I yeah. failed at balancing. Oh, I love Jean Richie. I've said this 70 times on our podcast. She said, dulcimer for me has always been the perfect accompaniment to the more important things in life. Oh, and, that's uh, good. We don't have to. I like that. She said it. I like it. <laughs> I started writing a song <clears throat> a, a month or no, it was probably within days of when my first grandchild Barrett was born. I still can't play it because uh, I, I emotionally I can't do it, and it's just happy. <laughs> it's not like it's a sad song. It's just been a what do you stroke run. out or what? No, I'm just I'm <laughs> overcome with joy and. I just can't do it. Huh. So it's absolute expression for me. Music is. Yeah. I agree with what Gene said. A hundred percent. Somebody's asking, uh, how does, <laughs> how does dulcimer school work? So you pay a fee and you have access to everything. Okay. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's always confusing. Cause people say, well, do I have access to, after I do one thing, do I get access to another? And it's like, no, you pay a fee. I'm not even sure what is the fee right now. You guys don't know, do you? <laughs> I think it's 19 No, it's, I think it's like roughly seven bucks for the first month. And after that, it's nineteen ninety seven. And there's no so, penalty yeah. for paying off the loan early. Uh, there is no loan, and you can stop anytime. You don't have to sign up for 17 years or anything like that. So, and, someone, like so someone's asking, what is everything? Oh, did they really? Yeah. So, everything means access to all hammer dulcimer, all mountain dulcimer, every single lesson that's up there. Uh, yes. You get access to all of it anytime you want to go online. Anytime. Um, I'm sharing this live show to other places here. Okay, you can do that. So how many hours of video is that now? I think there's over a thousand hours. It's something crazy. Yeah. yeah. That's there's not a true, of... dude. A thousand hours. There was a guy that my dad met. He changed light bulbs on radio towers. He told my dad that many of the towers were a mile high or more. Well, I didn't just say that. No, uh, Andre and Daniel actually told us at some point. Uh, no, can there's we... more than a thousand videos. Oh, okay. Are you sure? I'm pretty Maybe sure there's not true. a thousand hours of video, and there are I, no one-mile-high radio towers. <laughs> I'm I'm going to go with what you just said is sounding more realistic than what I said. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I That's think you're hilarious. right. It's more than a thousand videos. But we could probably ask them, and they could tell us. Hey, if you're just joining us, we're taking questions live. Dulcimer Geek Podcast. I'm Stephen Seifert. This is Dan Landrum. Right, listen, listen. This is Aaron a good question, Steve. This is... A smart marketing person. Yep. Gail, Gail Perna from the Everett Festival Hit it. asks, 33% of you, she's talking to the three of us, are traveling to Everett, Michigan in July. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what can I do to encourage the other 66% of you to join him? And now I'm traveling up there. Am I the, the third? She realized she was missing 1% and she said, that's chocolate. And I told her, actually, perhaps I think Steve is never really quite all there. <laughs> Maybe that 1%. Carol she's will be wanting to know, the chocolate. I think she's w wanting to know why Aaron and I aren't scheduled for Especially right since we run Dulcimer School and, um, you know, all that. So, yes, why aren't you guys going? So, that's, so the, the question, Gail, is, and I think the bigger question is, why don't we do every festival? Okay, and, well, that's and a good what, cop out. And what goes it. into making a decision as to whether or not you're going to do a festival. Hmm. So, uh, thoughts? Now, if you run a website that teaches people how to play Hammer Dulcimer, and you have a magazine called Dulcimer Players News, that person <laughs> might probably show up at the largest Hammer Dulcimer event in the world. But what about you, Dan? What, what, is, what does it take to get you to a festival? That was I, I feel that was an ad hominem attack <laughs> but but an ad hominem attack is not, yeah. remember we've talked about it is not necessarily a fallacy if it's that's right it's just an attack yes. and it could be attack. a form of intimidation and bullying <laughs> some of it uh permission to speak freely yes sir 
I don't think you should do every festival every That's true. Year. I think you can spread but why? yourself. Why? I think too you're th- right, but why? <clears throat> yeah. Well, there's multiple reasons. You can spread yourself too thin. Mm-hmm. You should take time to work on what makes you stay excited in the instrument. Now, if you're doing this thing only because it's the way you make a living, I agree with what you said about the guy who owns the magazine, you know, and all that. He ought to do everything he can to get every penny that he can. From that, that guy. Yeah. That guy. Yeah. I am not that guy. <laughs> I can't, I, I don't work that way. I'm a not, I just can't do that. So, yeah, that's it. I think sometimes you have to recharge your batteries and work on new material and get yourself excited about new things. And Who's that guy? Does. What is that guy like? Which guy? <laughs> the guy that does whatever he has to to make a penny? Is it, What did you say? Yeah. This isn't just a way to make a living for me. Right. It's, it's everything. It's a lot more than that. Hmm. But I'll tell you what, since I'm oh. going, I'll be glad to put out your magazine for everybody to look at so problem solved now the other problem is you're cool to have on stage there but uh maybe you're saying it'd be better if you took a year off yeah well angie and i decided quite a few years back that we were going to try to i was doing 20 festivals a year jeez that was too much i mean that was right off of coming off the yanni stuff where i was traveling you know six months out of the year for almost four years and then jumped right into doing these festivals and things. I don't want to travel that much anymore. I like being at home. I have grandkids that bring me so much joy. And the yeah. time that I'm gone, I'm I'm really missing them. Now, when they're old enough to go and do these festivals and things with me, you may see a different story. I have hmm. a blast at the festivals, but I definitely couldn't afford to go to them if I wasn't being paid. And yeah. Um, I do have a mom to take care of and a family to take care of. And so I'm going to have fun, to make a living. I'm going for a little bit of everything. Well, what about my, you, Aaron? Why aren't you? Going my reasoning's a little bit more straightforward. Um, I'm doing uh, a whopping uh, six different week long camps this Whoa. year. Wow, yeah. Amazing. And my summer's pretty packed. And um, I think I'm actually going to be out in Oregon. Um, while uh, efforts happening this year, am I so, going to be out in Oregon while efforts happening? No, I think you are. Uh, well, actually, yeah, I don't know. I've got no idea. We're going to figure it out. But basically, yeah. you want to be home sometimes too. Yeah, yeah, we are going to take a little bit of time off this summer. My wife is from from Portland, Oregon. Oh, so after the Wallowa camp, we're going <laughs> to good no, for you I, marrying I a Portlander <laughs> an Oregonian. It's really cool. Yeah. <laughs> Gail, I have like, to take wow, you a married an Oregonian to nice. Lewiston. Uh, where am I going? Lewiston, Utah. Where am I going? It's like Idaho a donkey to go to a festival. Oh anyway, yeah. I'm, You're flying into Lewiston. I'm going to barely get to Everett. But, but um, yeah. anyway. Hey, listen. Hey, uh, how about this is totally one? personal and probably not what I should do on the podcast, but I'm going to tell you right now. Don't take forget. your shirt off, please. No. You need to get a hold of Randy Klepper because he wrote me yesterday about renting that same cabin that we had last year at Everett. We could do that, but they don't have air conditioning in it. Can I just say this? Mm-hmm. If I'm going to work hard in this world, and, and that I, I just want some air conditioning. That's all. If, I, if we're going to go live out in the woods and be survivalists and have no air conditioning, fine. But if you want me to put on some clean clothes every day and keep my hair from going to straight dreadlocks, I need air conditioning. All right, next question. <laughs> next question, Aaron. Well, actually, our, our friend Carrie Cooley asked a question that we sort of touched on a while back. Um, that is... When you compose a piece, what is your process start to finish? Have That's you developed good. a system for composing, or is it different every time? And I'm glad this came up, because one thing I didn't mention in the podcast when, Steve, we were talking about composing, and you gave us this theme. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that? Yeah. Um, yeah. And we were going to coach you into into writing a piece. One thing uh, that came up recently was, um, for the most part, especially early on, 
I didn't think anything that I had written was actually a real piece until someone heard it and told me it was. Yeah, you told me it, that last week. That's really interesting. Yeah. And you that happens over and over for you? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit less dependent on hearing it now, but I think, uh, f- gosh, I don't know. Many, many original compositions, especially when I started, like in the first uh, five years of writing, I needed that uh, <laughs> that kind of um, confidence boost, I guess, for someone to to say that it sounded like a real piece of music. But that's nothing to do with process, really. Um, in terms of process, yeah, it's it's different for every song. Um, one of the things that, that I know I've mentioned on here before is I like to sit and practice and try and make my fingers do what they don't want to do. Just sit on the instrument and go, okay, in what way have I not navigated this fretboard before? And a lot of it sounds like nonsense, but then every once in a while, something will really catch my ear by surprise. And I think it's, it's easy to do that because my fingers haven't played that before. And then once this, this thing that catches my ear by surprise happens then i start to just work out from there um where's this where's this little melodic piece coming from where is it going to how does it make me feel and then that kind of paints the bigger picture i think the uh another way of saying that is if you want to get creative get technical and if you want to get technical get creative yeah really it's i think it's a rule i think it it's a real rule <clears throat> and it works. Hey, we got a good question here uh, from James Reed Jr. If you could design a completely custom hammer dulcimer or mountain <laughs> dulcimer, what feature would you want that, what one feature, let's say, would you want that currently isn't offered by builders? So let's, let's do all three of us on this one. <clears throat> I'm going to throw some things out there. Sharpening levers. What? Oh, sharpening levers on the hammer. Really? Wow. Oh yeah, like a harp. That's yep. awesome. Yeah. Why they, not? They, they're all. They, it's not new. The Chinese instruments have something similar to that. They just have it. Yeah. Really, no American hammer dolls were builders that I know do them. Hmm. <clears throat> would they be on every course or just specific courses? I don't know. I guess it would depend on. Dan, what if you just had, you know, when you play up the left side, like you're doing a mixolydian, a major scale with a G natural. Yes. I could see just having one to start as a trial on that G, make it a G sharp. Yeah. But it would need to be on a really good instrument. Let's see. So that's one. All right, uh, Aaron. Oh, no, you're not. I'll do another one when we come back around. Um, I don't know because, uh, right now, um, Right now, I, I'm I'm pretty happy and satisfied. We've got me between me and you. We're having a number of of conversations going with uh, with builders. W- yeah, with builders. Um, probably more than I've than I've ever had in the last year. Um, about uh, a dream dulcimer, and I've I've learned a lot in the process. I mean, from my friendship with uh, with David Beatty and getting to spend some time in the shop with him. To talking to our our friend uh, the guitar builder Tony Vines and what Mike Clemmer's doing and I know you're working with Terry McCafferty on uh, some really cool stuff. So and, and and honestly, if you look at Folkcraft and what they've done the last bunch of years, they've really listened to artists and tried things out. And I mean, we could go down Ready? the line. I yeah. wait a minute. Awesome. Is it me? Well, yeah, yeah. If you've got one, you bet. Um, this is something I really want. So I gave up on pickups a long time ago <laughs> and uh, I tried that K and K twin spot Yeah. and I did a show with Rick Thumb this last Sunday and I loved it. I had a little amp as a monitor for me. It, it was my monitor that I controlled. That was a pleasure. But the sound that came out of that thing was cool that went into the PA. But what I'd love to have in addition to that, and I really want this. This is not something that would be cool. This is something I think I would absolutely use. I want a magnetic pickup as well in an acoustic dulcimer because I want to pretend to be an electric guitar sometimes and get that tone. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't mind mixing the electric guitar tone from the magnetic, like the K&K twin spot and a microphone. 
And um, Dan, could you just tell me real quick, because I don't know this. The bags pickup I have in a dulcimer is an under-the-saddle pickup, and I think that's called piezo. I don't right. know how to say it. Piezo. What is that K&K twin spot, those little discs? What are it's those? Also, they're also piezos. Why does it sound so different to me than the bags? <clears throat> I don't know. I mean, placement, probably. Well, the bag sounds like zzz, zzz, like a cat being electrocuted. Oh, so oh. There, there could be. That sounds like distortion, what you described. But I know that one thing that KK Sound does. I hear that on all things that use that. <clears throat> yeah. KK Sound is really good about shielding. You, you know that black cover, the black plastic? They shield yeah. their pickups better than most. Uh, I think that's that's one thing. There, It's a thinner piezo film. I don't know. I really I don't know. either. All right, what do you got, Dan? Give us another one. Well, <clears throat> the, the uh, a true MIDI output instrument. Would yeah, be that's fantastic. Nice. Oh. But true MIDI, not you know, it just nobody's been able to isolate the. Uh, and you're talking you specifically have... about hammered right now. Yeah, where when you strike this position, it triggers a mappable corresponding note. And it doesn't trigger anything else. And it doesn't trigger anything else, and it can pick up rolls and that kind of stuff. So that's just, it's just a matter of technology. Yeah, ultra sensitive, oh. but it won't pick up anything else. <laughs> I know, I know, it's nuts. So, and then the last one I guess I'll throw in there is I would like an instrument that is at least two parts. So the top part is a 1211, and the bottom part is like a 1615. And you put the two of them together, you reach somehow in a slot in the back and you do something that connects the two. So that I had a, when I wanted to just play something light and pretty, I could use the lower part. When I wanted to really get a big, heavy bass, you know, piano-like sounding thing, I had the bottom part. The bottom could weigh more than the top part. It would be easier to carry the two of them and take a large instrument as you travel. Would I don't know anything about hammer dulcimer construction, but would the opposite of that make sense? Because for the the low register, don't you want a larger uh, resonant cavity? Yeah, that's what I said. Oh, like a 1211 at the top and like a 1615 at the bottom. Okay. I don't know enough to actually that's engage okay. any further. Yeah. <laughs> okay. It, yeah. Sorry, I need to pick up my hammer dulcimer lessons again on <laughs> dulcimer oh, school. Oh, gosh. Hey, listen, but I want to read. I, I got one more real quick. Oh, you quick. got another go. Yeah. Oh, I, just I, got another one too. I don't. Okay. I don't have the dulcimer yet, but I but I will be getting it. And it's from our friend uh, Mark, and I don't know how to say his last name. Rung or Rungji? Rungji? Yeah, <laughs> Kung Fu Kruker. That's what yeah. I call him. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, I think it's Rungi. Okay, cool. Well, Mark, <laughs> over in um, in East Tennessee, right, in Merville, um, I talked Marvel. to him about a... Uh, a teardrop dulcimer that's got sort of the traditional thing going with uh, partial frets. Um, so the frets only go underneath the melody string. But one really cool thing that that he did that that I'm really excited about is um, he uh, he cut this part of the fretboard where the frets are actually going to sit, so that the top of the frets are even with the fretboard underneath the uh, the middle and bass string. Oh, so that's as a yeah, so as opposed to a traditional dulcimer that's partially fretted, where you fret that melody string and you know the string goes all the way down to the fret. You if you're gonna do something uh, on the fretless middle and bass string, you've got further to push down. Uh, so the action is inconsistent because there's no frets oh, there. So he has it totally leveled. I think it's. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I think it'll be pretty cool. All right, did you say right, you I got another one? Steve? I got a, one more. Um, this is a. This is my pipe dream a little bit. But I want. And I've been talking to, I, I should I talk about this? Yeah. Yes, quickly. I want the frets to go. <laughs> oh, we're not in a hurry. I want uh -huh. the frets to go up and down according to some kind of algorithm so that they disappear or appear for me. For instance, I love chromatic. However, an essential part of my playing style is diatonic slides. So I would like to have a chromatic, and I would also like to have, when I push a button, some of those go down into the instrument and I have a diatonic. <laughs> 
And then the diatonic could shift from D to E flat. And I mean this. Because I think I could kick butt with that. And you can laugh at that, but if you look at the the pedal steel players in Nashville, those things are complicated, and they became an essential part of the American musical landscape. (laughs) (laughs) Works for me. Here's a quick one. Uh, please talk about string gauge and it's uh, this is from uh, uh, DJ Hemoris. Uh, please talk about string gauge and its relationship to instruments. For example, why can a standard McSpadden be turned into a baritone dulcimer just because you why uh-huh. can't I think is what she meant because you use lower string gauge? Doesn't it warp the instrument or something? Just trying to wrap my head around these issues. Aaron, could you do that? Um, I'm afraid I'm going to say something that might contradict what a lot of builders say and. I really think um, there's a there's quite a few dulcimers out there where you don't run the risk of uh, anything negative happening with the instrument. You might need to tweak the uh, the intonation a bit when you put heavier gauge strings on it. Um, but essentially, we've got a lot less tension on the instrument than guitar, mandolin, and we've got this brace that runs across the entire body. So the fingerboard is a brace, right? Yeah. Um, so we're pretty safe. I've converted a few dulcimers to baritone with no noticeable difference. Um, but it's a relief in the fingerboard. The bridge or, around or, or yeah, it takes, it. like I said, it, it might take a tweak on, um, uh, intonation, but as far as the structural integrity of the mountain dulcimer, I haven't run across any of mine that suffered. Steve, do you I have, have any opinions theory. on that? Well, like, I know that acoustically, there's reasons that a bass should be a larger instrument than right. a little. I mean, we could see that in the st- yeah, like okay. violins and, some, and contrabasses. And some builders them. won't do a baritone or a bass unless it's a, a longer scale instrument. But there's something I like about a, just turning a regular McSpadden, for instance, into a bass. Mm-hmm. Once you get your saddle issues worked out in your action. I feel like it cuts through on a microphone better or something. Now, I realize this is more complicated than just that, but I kind of love the sound of a regular McSpadden with bass strings coming through a mic. It, you know, I just like that, but I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. It's making longer, pretty dulcimers. You know, please buy their dulcimers, please. All right. <laughs> so since we're bringing other people in, I didn't get permission from uh, this person to, to use her name. Uh, so SM, that's her initials. It just It's a nice uh, email I got a couple of days ago. Writing to let you know I just discovered Dulcimer Geek a few days ago and I love it. I started playing music when I was quite young, mostly fiddling, but I also started playing Hammer Dulcimer in my early 20s. Put all my instruments away as I grew into adulthood, thinking I didn't have the time or the musical companions with which to enjoy them. But that's such a common story. I mean, I don't mean your story's common. I mean... right. You know, not alone. After 20 years or so of musical silence, I recently revolted and started playing my dulcimer again. I'm back at the beginning, just learning the basics, but remembering a time when my instruments were an extension of my own voice and how wonderful it felt to fall so deeply into the music. I was playing that it felt, excuse me, I was playing that if it felt like the music just came out of the thoughts in my head rather than any physical movements that I made. My family and I are not musicians, and Southern California, where I live, is not exactly the heartland of traditional acoustic music, so I often feel like an odd space cadet. Finding your Dulcimer Geek podcast was like finding new friends who would drop off from the same mothership. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> that's sweet. Isn't that nice? <laughs> that's nice. Yeah. yeah. So there's another question in here from our friend uh, Jim Thornton in Texas. Uh do you see ensemble mountain dulcimer playing becoming a bigger thing? People playing bass, rhythm, lead, etc. I think that could apply. Same question to mm-hmm. hammer dulcimer. Why isn't it? I think it's easier with mountain dulcimer because you guys can tune more quickly. <laughs> it's a big deal. Yeah. What do you think? Well, there's clubs. I hear this quite often. Somebody will say, this is actually something I hear sometimes. Um, you know, I used to go to such and such a club, but now they're all into this parts thing. And so Mm. I don't go anymore. Or somebody will say, you know, we're tired of just jamming all the time. We want to do parts. I I'm hearing that a lot over the last three or four years. It's, 
I'm. What's the question? Is it going to happen more? Do you think, do, yeah. Where do yeah. you see ensemble playing? <laughs> There's room Going. for both, is what I would like to say, and I don't see why a club couldn't say, "Hey, for those of you who want to do an ensemble, we're going to split off and go in this room and work yeah, on, on this Thursday piece. nights or something." Yeah, and for those of well, you who want to learn a, a piece that you can play solo, I think just thinking of ensemble outside of the the dulcimer world for a second, I think with yeah. mountain dulcimer at least, we're still figuring out how we fit into the broader uh oh you mean with other instruments yeah because so many times there's another instrument there playing the role we might play like the time i i showed up and there was a famous mandolin player but he was a nice guy so when he saw i was playing with everybody he he didn't get his mandolin out because i was kind of being a mandolin Mm mm-hmm and when I stopped, he pulled it out and got up there. I've noticed that with a lot of bluegrass groups, they'll try not sure. to overdo something. Yeah, I think there's another thing at play here. There's, and I don't mean to sound critical, but there's there's playing the way that it would be satisfying to play it in a club, mm-hmm. you know, where it's an exercise and you're learning something because you're reading and you're trying to learn to blend with each other. And then there's mm-hmm. being an ensemble that wants to perform and do something that makes people go well, that should have been done on these particular instruments. I mean, not do that. I mean, if when it's done, it doesn't have to be classical music either. I just, I still think back to that moment at the Chattanooga Dulcimer Festival when you and Butch and Jeff Hames, Steve, played Pinball Wizard. Yeah, it was fun. On three dulcimers. That was just, that's just so cool. That was an ensemble as far as I'm concerned, doing something that sure. really was Duet exciting. Sure, kind of, you know. Yeah. I mean, I'll tell you my favorite thing is duets. I love duets. And I, it, even in the Indian classical world or in blues, mm-hmm. I kind of just like seeing two people. But I, I like it all. Yeah, get out there and make some noise, people. Do, but I could see, you know, you see these uh, YouTube videos of people who get up with four cellos or four basses or four violins or whatever, and they perform a piece that was written for a larger ensemble, they rearrange it and they, it's so good, you know, cause you realize all the things that they're pulling out of those instruments. I'd like to see more of that happening with mountain dulcimers and hammer dulcimers, hmm. much like you and I both being huge Chris Thiele fans, what those guys have done with instruments that if you see them on the stage before they walk out, you think, Oh, we're going to watch a bluegrass band. Yeah. <laughs> and they begin and your jaw drops, you know, Yeah, because they're just I mean, taking the instruments places that you might not have even known they could go. And I'm not talking just about chops. I'm talking about technique that they're using to play. There's a let's lot just of, do, let's keep making music. Let's yeah. keep doing it. There's a lot That's of all. ground to be explored. There's a, there's a lot of uncharted territory, I think, for us. Mm-hmm. All right. Questions? Well, one thing that I'll add to that, and this is, yeah, I don't want to offend anyone with saying this, but I feel like uh, with Mountain Dulcimer, at least, I think in ensembles where we, where we sometimes tend to run into trouble is when we try and, I think, uh, stick a little too closely to another instrument like a guitar hmm. or mandolin part. Cause we have a, we just have different sonic qualities That's right. uh, to the instrument. It's also That's a great it. blessing when you do that, I think. Yeah. I don't know that. I mean, maybe you guys are going to argue with me. Probably are. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I don't know that you have accepted your voice. When you try to figure out, when you say the the mandolin guy walks up and tries to figure out what to do with you, I think the mountain dulcimer has a voice that's unique and can fit within all kinds of music. It just doesn't get used very often. It's, it's, used, it's easy to say that. It's romantic and nice to say that. <laughs> no, I think it's supportable that it's not. Hammer dulcimer actually gets used, at least electronically, more then Mountain Dulcimer gets used as oh, a Oh, sure. Movies, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Oh, by the way, Steve, you gave me a lead for a gig that I got. I'm coming to Nashville this weekend. What I'm kind recording. of gig is it? It's I'm recording Hammer Dulcimer for a movie score. What What movie? What do you mean? They, haven't, they aren't saying what the title is, uh, but the music is fantastic. There's 12 pieces, <laughs> and uh, 
It's Harry Potter 8. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> or 9, I guess. I don't know, but they yeah. somebody really has put some thought into this. I got the scores and stuff, and, and it's it's a good use of Hammer Dulcimer. Really? That they sent me, though, and this is back to my point, they sent me the MIDI files, you mm-hmm. know, where you could hear it being played on these, instru- on you know, just awful sounding sampled instruments. And you're thinking, somebody could spend months trying to make these MIDI files sound good, and they would never really mm-hmm. have, I mean, maybe they could do it. But I can hear the real hammer dulcimer being placed, you know, in with the real strings and the real brass and the real percussion. There's lots of percussion. Dude, that's and it awesome. fantastic. Yeah, it's exciting. That's nice. Uh, Mountain dulcimer ought to be doing that, too. I just think there's this voice that's so pleasant about the mountain dulcimer. And it's not necessarily what you guys are going for. Like, Aaron, when you write your solo pieces, that's something else. But there's just also this feel. I don't know. Maybe it isn't something else. You could, I could see I you, so. the stuff you're writing, being accompanied by the other guys. You know, he backpedals right now. <laughs> What's that? No, no, no. Nothing. I'm, I'm responding to the thoughts that are appearing in my brain. Honestly, uh, yeah. I mean, I like what we. I I believe that some like Schnaufer used to say the dulcimer can be a guitar and it can be a mandolin, it can be a banjo, it can be a harp. So I, as a soloist, I love that. Uh, but I also like there's certain sounds. Like when I'm invited to a studio to record dulcimer, I'm ready to be anything. But I also need to remember, if they're bringing me in, what can I bring that's uniquely dulcimer? You know, And so for me, sometimes that means maybe a noter-style thing, using plenty of slides, something that's drone-based. And I know that's not the only unique thing, but I like doing it all. I like pretending to be a mandolin. I like sounding like a ID stamper from 1972 on an, you know, an old yeah. noter-style dulcimer. I like both of those things. I agree. And I think, like when you said noter-style... <clears throat> I heard sounds in my head that there's nothing like that. Yeah, those, there's no other instrument that produces that particular same sound. And when I think of good mountain dulcimer playing in my head, I hear something that is unique to the mountain dulcimer that a mandolin or a guitar couldn't do. So I don't know. Yeah. I, I just think mountain dulcimer, you guys have way more players and the right producers haven't discovered the right people to use them in the right places yet to figure out how it fits with modern music. Yeah. And (laughs) and instead of blame those producers and start, I I just want to say, let's just make some cool music and let's play it. Well, I'm excited about that. That's what Aaron's recordings are, man. I mean that, that he took everything up a notch with the stuff he's done with string players and his, his solo stuff. Um, I think. Well, thanks, dude. I think there's enough Aaron That's out there nice. to say, "Here's yeah. a way the dulcimer can sound," and it definitely does sound unique. It's the restriction of the three strings. You know, there's all kinds of uh, interesting stuff about it. Yeah, I hope I didn't come across as complaining about producers. I just don't. Aaron's think the crying moment, right now, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I just don't think the moment has happened yet. And and partially, I think it's because there's so much. I'm not anti-tradition, but there's so much lore already associated with this. You know, if you say Mountain Dulcimer, people know anything. They're going to go, oh, Cindy Lauper, you know, did this. And they're going to go, oh, Gene Ritchie did this. And there's these certain ways it's been presented. And even, does that make sense? That I just yeah. think it's a voice that hasn't been used properly. Yeah. Hey, I got I, some new glasses. Oh yeah, very cool. The Hunter S. Thompson glasses. <laughs> That's right. nice. Yes, yeah. Gonzo Dulcimer. Uh, gentlemen, wait, it's wait. been about an hour. Aaron's looking up a question. Oh, we got another one. Um, my dad. No, we got comments. It says ninety-two percent of the people watching this show right now are not watching this show right now. <laughs> 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 That's All right. funny. All right, there's a whole lot more. I mean, we've, yeah. we we do have more questions, and maybe maybe we should be more prepared when we do a show like this, <laughs> <laughs> like having a I wanna, piece of paper or something. I want to say something that's kind of 
this will be if we're wrapping up this is my wrap up i was in florida a year ago working with rick thumb mm-hmm. yeah he's got boundless energy man He's early morning to late at night, and he's running here, and he's like, hurry up, Seifert, come on, help me get this. And last year, I just felt old around him, and I felt... (laughs) Even I feel old Anyway, this year... (laughs) So this gives me hope. This year, which was last week, I I was full of energy. And so, um... It just goes to show you, don't ever think you got yourself figured out, you know? I like to think that uh, there's surprises down down the road, music or whatever. Um, I'm open and excited about something cool happening in the future. I see a change a in your of life, areas. Steve. I see yeah. it. If, if... It's, yeah. It, 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 I think it's represented perfectly with your choice of eyewear. Exactly what yeah. I was going to say. If a year ago, certainly two years ago, I'd said, hey, Aaron and I are wearing like bandanas. You need to wear one too. <laughs> what would you have said? Dan, I'm we- not doing that stupid. Can we just do the show? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But I mean, I'm the guy at summer camp that would dress up like a bear in a dress, you know, but I just <laughs> go through phases. Where the song came from, the waltzing with bears. Oh, nice! <laughs> it's written about Steve. So, um, I don't know. Are you guys all right? Yeah, yeah. I think it's all good. All good. Dan's gonna be in a movie. It's probably <laughs> gonna be some major blockbuster. Or not? But it's. Hmm. I'm excited about the music. It's hey, cool. I accidentally ordered these. Is it chocolate? Hey, listen to this. I'll. T- Get that over where we can see it. Hold it up and to your left. <laughs> I accidentally ordered these. <laughs> accidentally. They're great, though. I don't know what they are. <laughs> I, I anyway, I thought, wouldn't it be great if we mm-hmm. had dulcimer versions of whatever these are (laughs) (laughs) what what is that steve i'm interested in circuit bending where you find uh, electronics and you go in and you do things that you're not supposed to do to them to create new sounds and you actually can create a playable instrument out of just some like an old speaking spell from hasbro or whatever yeah and uh, the guy, I didn't do this on accident. The guy that's known in Cincinnati as the guru of circuit bending, he recommends ordering these from China because they're they're easily modified. So uh, it's a project for me and my son. <laughs> so I'm excited about that. Can we just nice. hear a little more of that as we go out? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to the Dulcimer Geek Podcast. I'm Stephen Seifert. This is Dan Landrum, and this is Aaron O'Rourke. And until next time, gentlemen, have a good week.